0: The Labor Day Murders, one of the most infamous murder cases in Mississippi history. This is a story about a relentless detective, cutting-edge DNA technology, and family using media to warm up this cold case with a podcast.
1: As I have been an adult, I, I just thought about this story over and over, that it got to this fever pitch where I wanted to see if I could find some answers out on my own.
0: That's Jason B. Jones step-grandson of Betty Jones, one of the two murder victims in this case. I just spoke with him on Labor Day about the case and what it was like to live through the nightmare as a little boy and then relive it as an adult through hosting his serial podcast called Knock Knock.
1: I would say even to the point of doing this podcast, I hadn't learned everything that had happened that night and um, it's Uh, When when I found out everything, it it, it is really the fuel of nightmares to what happened to Betty and Catherine.
0: What Jason has to say, heart-wrenching, and how he describes Catherine and Betty, just the nicest ladies. Now, before we dive into the case, I want to let you know that the content is for mature audiences and still might not be for everyone. I also want to remind you that we have a special shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts It really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed, so please consider subscribing, rating five star, and writing a review. I also want you to be a part of the investigation team, so if you have any case ideas, please head to my website, truecrimedeadline.com. Now the case of the Labor Day
2: murders. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your earholes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living. Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson
0: investigators thank you for joining me for episode 14 the labor day murders which is actually being published on the 29th anniversary of this terrible crime
3: breaking news out of starkville tonight in the labor day murders from 1990 to what is known as the the
0: labor day Day murders a case where two starkville
4: women were killed that is knock on the door betty answers the door uh, the suspect um, enters the house. The killer proceeds to the bedroom, raping and choking Catherine Krigler.
0: This unthinkable double murder case scared everyone in this small southern town. It happened on a hot day, Labor Day weekend. It was 100 degrees on September 3rd, 1990, in Starkville, Mississippi, a town of about 25,000 people, located roughly 130 miles or two hours from either Jackson, Mississippi, or Birmingham, Alabama, nicknamed Mississippi's college town. It sits adjacent to Mississippi State University, and everyone knows everyone else. Middle-class, hard-working, faith-based Southern community, with more than 80 churches and places of worship, including First Presbyterian Church in Starkville. This is where 65-year-old Betty Jones and 81-year-old Catherine Krigler would become friends. Catherine was a retired school teacher, mother of two, sang in the church choir and played piano. She struggled with some health issues, and Betty decided to help her out. Betty Jones loved sports, God, her family, including her step-grandson, Jason B. Jones.
2: So tell me uh, about your step-grandmother, Betty. Tell me, um, what do you remember about her? You have such fond memories, and you were, you were yep. 10 or 11, right? So tell me about Betty.
1: Yeah, she, she passed away when I was 10, and, and I, I probably hadn't seen her for about, I would say, six months prior. So, you know, the, the memories that I have of Betty are, are small things. Uh, my, my family grew up on a very modest income, so we knew that every time that Betty came into town, she was going to take us to nice restaurants. And, and nice was so relative. For me, nice meant that I got a dessert at the end because she was always so gracious in how she <laughs> loved us and took care of us. And so um, it was that. It was like going to, to restaurants that we couldn't afford to go to on our own. Or, you know, it was the way that she smelled. I remember that she was always wearing um, perfume. And so when I hugged her, I, I loved the way that she smelled and you know and then she was she was a a, a avid mississippi state baseball fan and so for a 10 year old boy to have a grandmother that knew this wealth of knowledge about baseball was just the coolest thing in the world and so um uh she she was just this beacon of light for our family and uh, as I may have mentioned on the podcast, my you know, she was only married to my biological grandfather for a few short years. As adults, you know, she, my grandfather came into the marriage with grown children. She came into the marriage with grown children. And so, as as I'm thinking about it through the lens of being an adult now, if I remarried and that person passed away, I don't know if I would feel that attachment to the the family that I married into. But for Betty, you know, once you were family, you were family for life. And so we never felt, even though, you know, we didn't know her as well as obviously her her um her children did, her biological children, actually and those children weren't even biological, she adopted, but those children that she raised, even though we weren't a part of her life for that long, she always felt as though she was blood to us.
2: And she was also the team mom, so she was also yeah. a mom or a grandmother to so many other people.
1: Yeah, that was just the way she was. I mean, she she just, uh, as I've spent time uh, hearing stories about her and learning more about her life, is that she just was someone who uh, gave until she had nothing left to give. I mean, she gave to you know her family, to her step-family, she gave to... Uh, the Presbyterian church that she went to. Uh, she served as a deaconess there and was constantly involved in raising, you know, money and serving people and helping out in any way she could. And then also she was a diehard Mississippi state baseball fan so much so that she served as this team mom. So like there are, you know, these, these players who are, you know, uh, all-stars like Will Clark and Raphael Palmero thought of her as an extended mom uh, when they were there in Starkville.
2: Okay, and then she also loved to help other people, and she was an active member of the church, from what I understand, and that yeah. brings us to, you know, her helping Catherine and putting yeah. her there that night. So talk to me about why she was there.
1: Yeah, so uh, Catherine Trigler was 81 years old. Uh, she was... Um, uh, had many physical ailments to her, some of which was she had had a double mastectomy. She was an amputee. She was confined to a wheelchair. And she had, you know, she had, she, when you're, when you've had that much happen and you're at her age, she was just not in, in good health. So um, her the proximity of her house was literally right behind the Presbyterian church. And so she would, you know, She was very active and very involved in the Presbyterian Church from before she was uh, an amputee to even, you know, well afterwards. And so the church was always helping her. She was homebound. And Betty, uh, being a part of that church leadership and also just being who she was as a friend of Catherine, um, was there that night to just help her out and keep her company. Uh, I believe she had been there a couple of nights. I'm I'm very close with the Krigler family, and so as we put the pieces together, uh, she was there for a couple of nights helping out uh, Catherine, and um, it was really a situation of the, the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: On Monday night, September 3rd, 1990, Labor Day weekend was just wrapping up. Police say the two had just finished dinner. They had both taken baths and were about ready to watch a baseball game on TV. When the killer started knocking on the door, Betty answered the door. The monster forced his way in and stabbed Betty. According to police, he slit her throat. She died at the front door. Catherine was still in her bedroom and helpless in a wheelchair at the time. Police say she came out of her room when she heard the noise and came face to face with the suspect who was covered in blood. He forced her back into her room where he brutally raped her, strangled her and left her for dead. She had a broken hip and fractured ribs. The suspect slowly walked out of the home, locking the front door behind him. Police say Catherine grabbed a pillow from the bed and used it to slide across the floor into the kitchen where she pulled down the old rotary phone off the wall and begged the operator on the other end to dial 911. When police arrived, the door was locked. No one around, no one answering the door. Officers broke a window to get inside, and that's when they discovered a gruesome scene. One detective told reporters that the crime scene was worse than anything Jack the Ripper ever did. Betty was dead on the floor lying in a pool of her blood, the baseball game still playing on TV. Catherine was rushed to a nearby hospital, where a full rape kit was taken and sealed. In November, two months later, Catherine died at a nursing home, and her killer thought he got away with it. But she was alive long enough and alert long enough to give detectives a description. Here it is. She described the suspect as a young man with short, spiky hair or a crew cut, light brown or blonde hair, and blue eyes, with possibly a suntan. Police were able to make a sketch, and at the scene, detectives collected some evidence, including fingerprints, hair, blood, and cigarettes. Police were investigating around the clock. Tips were coming in from the small town community, including one about an unknown person in the area around at the time. But the tips that really sparked interest of investigators were about a neighbor having a Labor Day party. People at the party said at one point the host left. He was described as young, lived next door, he was blonde, and known to carry a knife and smoked cigarettes. And one witness said that at one point that suspect once told them He didn't murder anyone, but maybe his other self did the killings. But police didn't have enough evidence, and they couldn't arrest him. The case went unsolved for three decades and was even featured on America's Most Wanted. In 2017, Jason decided to dive into the case for his Knock Knock podcast.
2: What was that like for you to learn so many details that most people don't want to know and also most people will never know? Like when you're actually digging into the files and you're actually looking at pictures or interviewing the people that were there on the scene or people investigating, what was that like for you?
1: I would say even to the point of doing this podcast, I hadn't learned everything that had happened that night. And um, it's. Uh, When when I found out everything, it, it, it is really the fuel of nightmares to what happened to Betty and Catherine.
0: Jason would befriend the lead detective working tirelessly on the case, Sergeant Bill Lott with the Starkville Police Department, who was handed the case in 2004 and worked on it on his spare time, even returning to parole after a tour in Afghanistan with the military, just to try and solve this case. He just felt connected to the victims, according to what he told local reporters.
3: Sergeant Bill Lott says he sees Betty Jones and Katherine Krigler as more than just victims. He sees his own family in the two ladies.
4: I was raised by uh, my sister and my aunts, and I always had strong women. And the more I read this case, uh, you know, Amazing person Betty Jones was, and Catherine taught school for 30-something years. My aunt Hilda taught 30-something years. To me, you know, it started to get too really, really close.
0: Sergeant Lott was on a mission to solve the case, and Jason on a mission to share the story, which became harder the more he learned from Lott about what really happened that Labor Day night.
1: And at one point, he asked me if I really wanted to know what happens? Would I be willing to turn off the recorder? And I was like, absolutely. And um, he's, like, he's like, dude, do you really want to know? And I said, yes. And I, you know, in looking back, I probably uh, should have said no, because, mm. you know, some of the details that he shared with me, you just don't want to hear about anyone, much less, a loved one um Mm -hmm. and so you know i i did i kept all of that out of uh, you know all of the details out of our show Uh, again this you want to know until you know and then you wish you never did
0: those details clearly driving detectives in 2005 while looking for new ideas on the internet sergeant lott had a light bulb moment he remembered they had dna evidence in the case semen collected in a rape kit enough to produce a full DNA profile. First, they tested the DNA. To the suspect, the young neighbor who said those weird things and carried a knife and smoked the cigarettes, he was not a match. They tested 60 other possible suspects, no match, and no match in CODIS. So detectives turned to Parabon NanoLabs, a company based in Virginia, and has helped solve dozens of cases. They had a new way of making a composite sketch of the suspect using the dominant variables of someone's DNA. Hair and eye color, skin color, body shape. Then, on the 28th anniversary of the Labor Day murders, Parabon sent back two composites. The first, what the suspect may have looked like back in 1990. And the second, what he might look like today. But still, no leads and no arrest. Then the science changes, and genetic genealogists upload the suspect's DNA to a genealogy website to try to find family members to build a family tree and give detectives a name. The same idea that led to the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, the suspect in the Golden State Killer case. Most police agencies use the site called GEDmatch, which is the public version of a site like 23andMe which now users must opt in to make their profile searchable to detectives. So please opt in. Will Parabon gets back to Sergeant Lott with a name. 51-year-old Michael Wayne Devon, father of three, a construction worker, twice divorced. He did not have a criminal history, but was in jail on new drug charges. And he was a smoker. So police took a discarded cigarette butt while he was in custody and sent it to the lab it came back. He was a match. On October 6, 2018, Michael Devon was brought to Starkville, Mississippi, where he was formally charged with the murder of Betty Jones. And the murder, rape, and sexual battery of Catherine Krigler.
3: Breaking news out of Starkville tonight. News after Starkville. nearly 30 years, a suspect in the Labor Day murders has been named. Here's what we know about Michael
2: Devon. He is 51 years old. He was being held in the Tishomingo County Jail
0: on unrelated drug charges.
2: Were you in Starkville in 1990? on Labor Day.
0: If Devon is responsible for these crimes, he would have been 23 years old at the time. In January 2019, he pleaded not guilty. We should note he is not convicted, but waiting trial.
1: Have you spoken to the suspect that was arrested? No, no. All that I really know is I know that he uh, has children who are devastated, uh, that, that had no idea that this was a part of their father's life um i know that he has photos uh online in front of you know confederate flags and um you you could you know i the feeling that i had as i just started to find out a little bit of information with, about him was just that i was i was sad that his life led him to the choices that he made and because if if he would have known betty or catherine i betty and catherine were the type of people um, that would have uh, that would have really cared for someone like like Michael and and wanted him to do better with his life.
2: And do we know why he knocked on the door that
1: night? Do we know anything about a motive at this point? We don't. You know, even in even as the uh, local news was covering him, they were you know yelling at him. Why were you in Starkville that night? What were you doing mm-hmm. there? Um, and and there we know that he was in the area. That he lived in the area at the time. Um, but we don't know why he was there. Why he targeted that house. Um, we don't know. And and you know I'm I'm hopeful that some of that will come out um, as the as the trial proceeds. But you know at the end of the day, like um, Betty and Catherine are gone. Uh, we found the person that took their life away, and uh, we hope that that Betty and Catherine get the justice that they that they so rightly deserved.
0: Since the arrest, Sergeant Lott has been promoted to Lieutenant Lott. This is how he reacted to the arrest in the cold case that he spent his life trying to solve. It's been an emotional day for Starkfield police lead detective Bill Lott.
3: Saturday, he sat across from the suspect for the first time. I just
4: told the other detective, I said, you do the talk and I just want to look at him for a little bit. Because, um, you know, it, it was emotional for me and I just Needed to center myself, you know, because it's been a long journey.
0: Meanwhile, Betty and Catherine's family still wait for answers. Why? Why them? Why did he knock that night? Hopefully, family and friends will get those answers at trial that they've been waiting decades on. We will keep you posted. I'll also post pictures about the case on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, and Twitter and Facebook under the same name. And remember, after the episode, a shout-out to those of you investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'll share with you a couple podcasts I think you're going to like. And speaking of podcasts, Jason told me he's already working on helping another family of an unsolved crime in Season 2 of Knock Knock after being inspired to help others through his family's case.
1: But I hope what we did was to illuminate... Betty and Catherine's story again and attract even national coverage so that hopefully in the future, more cases like this can be solved and not forgotten. Well, I appreciate you talking to me. Yeah. And um, I really
2: hope that, you know, you can check back in with us and keep us updated uh, on both knock-knock and on the case. And uh, again, I'm sorry that we're meeting under these circumstances.
1: No, thank you so much for taking the time to chat.
2: Investigators. Until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit TrueCrimeDeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time.
0: Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie?
2: the boy.
0: Now, a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. This one comes from Maggie out of Dublin, Ireland. Thank you. It says, Excellent. Great podcast, easy listening, as the length is perfect. Well, first off, pretty awesome that you're listening. Thank you for that. And I've got to get a Dublin, Ireland case at some point, I guess. Um, The next one says, Great podcast, rough interview. And here's why. It's out of 7-Eleven, and this is an excellent podcast, they write, with great information beyond or different from other true crime offerings. Thank you. I try. Um, I have to say that episode six, with interview with Louise Turpin's sister, was sickening. That said, Matt did an excellent job with the interview, and I applaud his ability to keep neutral. He is consistently excellent. Keep up the great work! Okay, thank you for that. Um, I'll pay you later. Just kidding. Um, Again, writing reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. So thank you. It's easy. It's free. Hit five star, subscribe, tell a friend and write a review and include your real name. And if you're a podcaster, um, I want to include your podcast, give you a proper shout out. Now, speaking of shout outs, I'm excited to tell you about two true crime podcasts I just found. They're called The Unseen podcast, and Crime Lines. So let's start with that one. Crime Lines is a podcast hosted by Charlie, who walks you through the crime, the event, and tries to help figure out why it happened in the first place. Take a listen.
3: Hey there, Charlie here. You might recognize my voice from the true crime show, Insight, R.I.P., I've rebranded the show as a solo show now, and it's called Crime Lines. I will walk you through the events of the crime, any trial that occurred, and the aftermath. Recent Crime Lines episodes include the Jack family, missing 30 years from British Columbia, Abraham Shakespeare, a man who won the Florida lottery and lost his life, and Janet Moses, a young woman who died in a Makatu lifting ceremony in New Zealand. And if you miss insight, don't worry. The old episodes are still available on the Crime Lines feed ready for you to binge. So go subscribe to Crime Lines on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: And you can find them and us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, basically anywhere where you binge. Now the second podcast is called The Unseen a podcast dedicated to UK missing people and unresolved cases. Check it out.
1: At the Unseen Podcast, we look at cases of missing people, unresolved investigations, and above all, we focus on UK true crime. So if you want to listen to UK cases and care about little known stories that might have been forgotten about, then we are the podcast for you. Join me, Caprice, every Sunday as we delve into these stories. You can find The Unseen Podcast anywhere you are currently listening and I hope you can join me in discussing forgotten and unresolved
3: cases.